welcome to the last thing I saw. This is another in the Berlinale 2022 series of podcasts. And I'm very pleased to be joined for this podcast for the first time, actually, um, by a programmer in a Prakash of Maisel Cinema in New York. Uh, hello, Ine. Uh, hey, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. First time on your podcast. First time at the Berlinale. And yeah, like you said, I'm a, a programmer at Maisel's. Um, I also run a new festival called Prismatic Ground um, that'll hold its second edition in, in New York. This May, it's centered on, uh, you know, experimental documentary. Um, so I've been here watching a lot of uh, forum and forum expanded stuff, which is very much my alley. And then I'm also a programmer for uh, the San Diego Asian Film Festival. Oh, yeah. How has it been just generally first time out here at the festival? I mean, I, I love it. Um, first of all, I, the town is, is very cool. It kind of took me aback at first with the kind of brutalist architecture. But within a, within a couple of days, I felt uh, weirdly at home. And, you know, it feels like New York moving around feels pretty easy. Yeah. Um, and the venues are very cool. You know, I've, I've managed to see quite a few of them from the main, the Berlinale Fil- Film Palace to oh, yeah. um, the Delphi Film Palace, um, a couple of the multiplexes. And um, my, my personal favorite, which is this old uh, crematorium that has been turned into a makeshift cinema. But yeah, as you said, you know, I've been focusing on, on form and form expanded stuff. To me, those are the films that are the most formally innovative, interesting, and, that, mm. and that's what excites me the most. And yeah. I mean, it's hard to know where to begin because it's also such an expansive uh, section. Um, but I think one title that really jumped out for you in the section, and I guess in the festival generally, was Dry Ground Burning. Yeah, so uh, this is my, my last day of the festival, the last industry day of the festival. I've got a couple programs left. Um, but I, I think that the film of the fest for me is going to be Dry Ground Burning, which was co-directed by the Portuguese director, Joana Pimenta, and the Brazilian filmmaker, uh, Adirli uh, Quiros, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I guess the past film that you'd associate with Quiros is White Out, Black In. Yeah, and uh, Once There Was a Brasilia. Yes, it was. Very cool, very punk, very lo-fi, sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that in, in Locarno and... It was a journey. So what's what's the new one like? God, where to begin? It's it's extraordinary. So Joanna Pimenta, also an excellent director, and, and she's very much of that, you know, again, what I'll call the experimental documentary world, I guess. She's a professor at Harvard, and, you know, the sensory ethnography lab is here in the, mm. in the credits. Yeah, so they're coming from a very, you know, docu-fiction hybrid aesthetic here. And um, basically, the setup is we're following uh, this woman and eventually her sister who are oil bandits on the outskirts of Brasilia dealing with a very sort of gangster lifestyle and the violence and chaos of what you know Adderley in the Q&A very plainly identified as Bolsonaro's Brazil mm-hmm. so we're dealing with inequality inequity authoritarianism mm-hmm. and the uh, exciting thing about it as well is, is it's a very in your face aesthetically but it's also um, it, it's also quite radical you know again from the Q&A Adderley didn't made no pains to hide the political nature of this I would call it very much an abolitionist film hmm. as well you know it's very anti-prison and at the end of the day, it's also just extraordinarily badass. Mm-hmm. You know, punk, hardcore, badass, whatever. The, these are the words to describe this movie. So is the camera work kind of like rough and ready? Or what's, what's, what's even the, like the, the structure of the film? So we kick off in this um, sort of pirate 
oil field. The uh, deal is uh, our main character is part of this operation of illicitly tapping into these official oil pipelines. Oh, wow. And kind of talked about this as an allegory for the way the new government has taken the profits of the oil from the people. Hmm. Right away, we get introduced to this fierce character named Chitara, who's very much a uh, unapologetically violent and lesbianically sexual being. Mm-hmm. She's a non-actor. So the filmmaking duo essentially scouted people from the streets and eventually found someone who, uh, as they put it, uh, after they talked to her, she said, you know, I know how to shoot a gun. Uh, I'm ready to go. Let's do this. <laughs> she just threw that out there. Yeah, right. She read, you know, they had talked to her about the script and stuff, and that was very necessary for this <laughs> for this film. And she does an amazing job. So she's playing a loose version of herself, a version of herself that's engaging in activities she did when she was younger. And then the other strong character is her sister, Leia, who was in prison when they began filming and who was released from prison about six months in and then appears in the film. People in the film had been talking about her, you know, within the world of the film. So they were unsure what they were going to do. They're like, we need her to show up at some point. And Uh and lo and behold, she was released. Wow. Uh, And then there's further drama that works its way into the film. But yeah, it's very much their lives that we're seeing Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. on film. And, you know, it's always a sticky wicket to talk about (laughs) collaboration and to what extent um, participants have agency. But it does seem like... There's quite a bit of the sisters' lives and perspectives that's foregrounded mm-hmm. in the movie. And so the, the fiction and nonfiction elements seem quite seamless in a way that I think a lot of films aspire to, but don't quite achieve at this level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you called it a, an abolitionist film. Could you explain that a bit? So Leia's uh, released from prison, and another character in the film starts this political party called like uh, the People's Prison Party, I think, or something like that. And, Hmm. you know, there's just a lot of like anti-carceral ethos baked into the Mm -hmm. plot and discussions in the film. And then again, that Q&A, which was very helpful and enlightening for what is a very dense film, you know, Adderley said this is a film against prisons, anti, mm-hmm. anti-prison. He was being translated, very but clear. was very clear about that. Yeah. And again, while, you know, while it is this formally innovative thing, it's also accessible, I think, in, in the way we've lately come to see some art house films have that potential, you know, Drive mm. My Car, et cetera. And, you know, they talked about wanting 50 million people or whatever to see this movie at having no limits. And I, I think it really, uh, because of the energy of it and um, mm. the sort of caustic humor, a very memorable lesbian party bus twerking scene comes to mind okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a fun film it's a it's, a, it's uh-huh. a violent film and it deals with real issues of structural violence and direct interpersonal violence but it's also mm-hmm. it's also very fun it's and the music is present throughout you know mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. this kind of brazilian hip-hop and there's an element that the banditry lends itself to a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you could give it just a kind of taste of what it what it looks like a little bit, just from a visual standpoint. Yeah, oh God, it, it, it's such a beautiful film. Um, mm. And it was shot by Joanna Pimenta is the is the cinematographer as well. Oh wow! And she talked about her role as being kind of more on set doing the shooting, and Adderley Moore is working with the actors. So was it influenced by sensory ethnography? I, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I hesitate. You know, I've had arguments 
with with people who have gone through that program at Harvard about whether there is a sensory ethnography aesthetic uh-huh. or, or not. And I know I did not go to that program. I don't know those filmmakers. I know there are people who did who would argue against the fact that there is. But for me, you know, the way the sound is used, the sort of in-your-faceness of it mm-hmm. and of the visuals does draw to mind those kind of seminal sensory ethnography films, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. But it's, you know, the film opens at night and it's this very grainy, powerful, you know, contrast of fire mm-hmm. from, from the oil field and, and, and black sky. And the high contrast in your face images are, are like kind of persistent throughout. And there's a lot of the landscape in the film, you know, she keeps it pretty wide, even though it's very handheld and gorilla. And that's okay. really exciting. Interesting. Yeah. Handheld widescreen is an interesting combination. Yeah. All right. Well, that definitely sounds like a highlight uh, for the festival. I, I can't wait to see it again. You know, it's yeah. very, it's a very dense and it's a very dense three hours. Uh, and, and I encourage people when they get the chance to check that out. And my my hunch is that it'll end up at the at the New York Film Festival. So that is a uh, dry ground burning. And that's in the forum section, Correct. right? Yeah. And I guess we're sort of informally it's a it's a forum episode uh as i mentioned uh so getting to another film in that section that that you liked uh instant life yeah so this is in the forum expanded section which is they're sort they're both uh officially run by uh arsenal the long-standing film archive out here in berlin in partnership with the festival and forum expanded is essentially the shorts Mm. uh, and it's split up into different shorts programs and in some cases single programs that are that are features or closer to feature length, but it's primarily shorts. Um, so Instant Life is one of these shorts, and it, it was the most striking that I saw. Shot on 16 millimeter, projected on 16, and it is made by uh, this trio of filmmakers, Anya Dornaden, Juan David Gonzalez Monroy, and the two of those have gone by the moniker Ojo Boca, and then this film they made in collaboration with Andrew Kim. Mm-hmm. And... What this film purports to be is a remake of a remake. So they claim okay. that they were visiting their friend Andrew Kim in, in California, Anya and Juan were, and uh, they found at a flea market mm-hmm. a VHS tape um, with some additional information that contained three remakes of a single frim- film from 1941 called Instant Life. And that this film was also called Instant Life. Okay. And that they then, and it was a very, it was a very uh, confusing Q&A, <laughs> and that they then endeavored to make a, a second remake, a third film, also called Instant Life, uh-huh. that remakes exactly the three films from the 1981 Instant Life. Okay. Now, viewers can judge for themselves, but I, I think these filmmakers ha- have a bit of the air of the trickster uh-huh. about them. Copy of a copy of a copy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how much you want to take at face value of this is up to you. But the film itself I- is beautiful. So there are these three films. You know, there there uh, is an end card for each one, but they play in sequence. Mm-hmm. And... It's a lot of close-ups of, like, crystal formation. And the second one contains a riddle that they claim was handed out at a screening of the 1981 Instant Life. Okay. (laughs) And the third film contains a very playful, philosophical voiceover 
that warns again essentially against the remaking of the film and they're like and that's exactly what we've done yeah um <laughs> so it seems like a, a classically like pension-esque sort of totally and i and i ate it up completely yeah. and then aside from that it, it's also just a beautifully shot film these filmmakers have such an amazing eye mm. so a lot a lot of cool stuff in form expanded but that that's easily the standout for me yeah yeah and just moving right along since i can't can't get enough of hearing the <laughs> hearing the about these projects is a film called jet lag um which first of all has as a title that resonates <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I was talking to somebody about this film and they're like, wait, you saw a movie called Jet Lag? I was like, yes, I was not describing my experience. <laughs> is that overdoing it a bit? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is a film by Zheng Lu Xinwan, uh, who some might recall did a, a film called The Cloud in Her Room. Um, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, this is a doc that juxtaposes two trips the filmmaker took one uh, a return to her hometown in China post COVID mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and a stay with her girlfriend and then one a trip with her grandmother to Myanmar to sort of investigate what happened to her great grandfather her, her grandmother's father mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and they're both shot on this black and white I believe DV uh, but it looks like uh, you know black and white DV video mm-hmm. and essentially it weaves together these two trips into a sort of dreamlike state, you know, hmm. that much like the title suggests, uh, makes one lose their temporal spatial grounding hmm. and get kind of lost in the poetic surf of uh, moments and textures. Again, this is a very uh, queer film, which is cool, uh, much like mm-hmm. Drag Round Burning. So I guess that's been kind of a theme for what has excited me. So the, so the journeys are there kind of... It feels like um, home movie footage. Okay. You know? mm-hmm. it, it's an, I, I be, it was shot with the purpose of being a film, but that's, that's the kind of feel it has. Okay. It, it's very intimate and first person and uh, doesn't attempt to hide anything yeah. um, from the viewer. Um, particularly with with respect to the intimacies of a relationship. Mm -hmm. I definitely need to revisit that one as well, but I'm left with a very beautiful impression, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. No, I mean, that sounds like a very... I like the idea of not being home movies, but, you know, making a home movie, basically. Yeah, a diary film. A diary film, yeah, yeah. I always like that kind of format. Yeah, so that's, that's Jet Lag, and... I mean, I'm curious to hear about another movie which I was actually started which I, w- I was able to start sort of absurdly on, on like a preview but quickly realized that I was not watching it on a sufficient screen <laughs> for what was going on much less I maybe my brain was not sufficient <laughs> to 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 handle it uh, and that's supernatural yeah um, um, yeah so this <laughs> tell me what you saw <laughs> one of my most anticipated films of the festival and it was the first one I saw um, also in the forum section mm-hmm. Directed by uh, George Jacome, who made a really popular short called Flores, and more recently had one called um, Past Perfect, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this feature is a collaboration with a Portuguese, I, be, I believe it's Portuguese, a Portuguese dance troupe uh, comprised of disabled children who I, I believe have uh, Down syndrome. Okay. And... Uh, they essentially commissioned him the way he put it to make a film with them. And what emerged is this very abstract, impressionistic and playful 
montage film strung together by silent narration. Mm. So words on the screen, uh, essentially the film starts on a black screen and the subtitles begin speaking to you from the film's perspective. Uh, You know, welcoming you to the space, uh, saying it's glad to see you there. Yeah, that's what that's what that's what threw me when I was starting it. I I was to be like enunciated or whatever the word is. Yeah, like, right. I, I was like, I'm not sure I'm I'm, I'm ready for this right now. And right. It reminded me uh, a little bit of there was a short film in the New York Film Festival called uh, "The End of Suffering" parentheses mm-hmm. a proposal, and uh, that had a very similar conceit. It's a beautiful film. People should check out if they can. I think it's actually on the Criterion Channel right now that has a similar conceit it reminded me of that and hypnotic is right it, it has a, it feels almost like a guided meditation it's sort of assuring you that everything's all right that there's no need for doubt or anxiety etc and i loved it at the beginning uh to be honest but it stays really persistent as the film goes on and gets a little repetitive and maybe a little cheesy so mm-hmm. I, I wished it had kind of let up a, as we moved on and let us just deal with the images which again are very abstract and and feature the dancers, the kids, you know, like uh, engaging, what, not not in what we would think of as like kind of straightforward formal dancing, but a more modern interpretive um, mm. exercise based movement thing. They're basically put into different scenarios and there's definitely a discussion to be had about the amount of agency they had. You know, the filmmaker described this as collaborative as well, but um, you know how that works. I'm not sure. But it, it is, it's very playful and, and sweet, even if it doesn't uh, quite cohere by the end. And what about the use of color in the film? Yeah, so there are these shifts to these, to the, to like this neon almost overlay, which people will remember from uh, Flores if they've mm. seen that. Oh, okay. uh, the purple, uh, the bright purple tint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the sort of, key image from the film that's been used as the key image for the forum Mm. is of this uh cut open fruit and uh has the purple tint and this scene actually is is very sweet and fun and funny um one of the children makes a face in the fruit with eyes and a mouth Uh and it begins to make noises uh-huh. <laughs> as they as they squeeze it and, and yeah. maneuver it, um, that, I mean that does sound like faintly hallucinogenic. Yeah, basically, absolutely. <laughs> it's a trip. Uh, that's supernatural. Uh, also in the forum section, and I think we're going to fit in one more film. And which one do you want to do you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I know maybe it, it wasn't you know on the level uh, for you of these other films, but. Uh, I was curious about Kegelstadt Trio a little bit. Yeah, so (laughs) Kegelstadt Trio, I'll start by saying personally, you know, as I'm going to explain, this one didn't work for me, but I've talked to other people who love it, Mm -hmm. for whom it's one of their favorites of the festival. It's a film by Rita Acevedo Gomez, and it's an uh, adaptation of a Romer play Mm -hmm. um, that I think, if I'm recalling correctly, the film explains or the description explains was initially meant to be another segment in the adventures of Renette and Mirabelle. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> So the fifth adventure. Right, exactly. <laughs> but became a play. And, you know, the idea of a new Romer movie is so enticing. Mm-hmm. But uh, he wasn't just a great writer, you know? He was a very 
particular director who knew how mm-hmm. to draw out sensuousness in certain moments, humor in certain moments, who was an expert at the timing of interplay between lovers. And yeah. everything about this just seemed a little bit off to me hmm. in a way that didn't work for me personally. It's shot in a series of these beautiful still tableaus. Hmm. So these kind of long, these long takes, but uh, something about the performers, perhaps the way they were directed, it just didn't hit for me mm-hmm. in the way that Romer at his best does. And yeah. and I think others might feel differently. It's also two and a half hours long, which I don't think Romer would have made a right. two and a half hour long it's, movie. Yeah, it's not necessarily the Romerian way yeah. for, for those sort of films. Right. Um, and wait, what's the what's the scenario again? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the, the film is um, about two kind of elder lovers. The man is older than the woman, but they're, you know, they're she's probably middle aged and he's a bit older who are reconnecting after some time. They they've pre- they're ex lovers. Um, he still wants her and it's it's basically a process of sparring and introspection uh, guided by him wanting to be with her again and her gesturing towards um, her other lovers and the reasons that she can no longer be with him. Mm-hmm. And where where does it take place? And it takes place in, in perfect Romarian fashion in some beautiful house in somewhere in the countryside. <laughs> yeah. One of his country yeah. films more than like a Parisian. Right, exactly. Um, again, so if you're a rum or die hard, check it out. Um, I'd be curious to hear other people's thoughts. But for me, it just highlighted the precision of his directorial um, sense, you know? Right, by comparison. And, and and what was missing and how so much of what makes him brilliant is the subtlety and the timing of the interactions between the characters and the casting, which I felt was off here as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, it does just conceptually, it it does sound interesting just as a project to take a tack of, you know, you were saying these kind of tableau type shots as as opposed to the casual seeming assembly of scenes in many Romero movies. So it is, you know, she's doing her own thing. It's it's not just trying to imitate Romer. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to suggest that. But um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a bold um, endeavor. And yeah, one that yeah. excited me at face value. Yeah. Well, I will be hunting that one down. Kegelstadt Trio uh, by Rita Acevedo Gomez. And, oh, and you know what? I should plug yeah. also, uh, Forum Expanded. We had a strong showing from two of our uh, New York oh. favorites. Uh-huh. Simon Liu, who was here with his film Devil's Peak, that appeared uh, originally as an installation at The Shed. And uh, Carl L. Sasser, whose film uh, Home When mm-hmm. You Return, uh, that premiered at the New York Film Festival. Um, they're both here representing uh, New York strongly in the um, in the forum expanded. Great, that's great. Uh, perhaps we'll get a chance to talk more about them down the road. And I think uh, I think that may bring us to the end of this this episode. Absolutely. And just just to as a reminder, uh, you were mentioning that submissions are open. Yeah. So submissions are open for Prismatic Ground, the second edition, until March first. This is going to be uh, the first in-person uh, festival. Oh, great. Uh, it'll be hybrid, online, and in-person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be uh, really exciting. You know, I, I already have reasons to be really pumped about it. I think it's going to be really special. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I encourage people if they have stuff that falls on the experimental documentary wavelength yes um to go ahead and submit and people can check out prismaticground.com for more information one last shout out for for the berlinale yes 
Bramable's Donuts on that on that strip uh, <laughs> yes. where the the Palast is. Mm-hmm. Uh, just incredible, incredibly innovative donuts, <laughs> forum worthy donuts. That's the kind of extra kick you don't get from a virtual <laughs> festival. Yeah, that's, that's the greatest formal innovations are occurring in, in the shape of a donut. I pass it by often. It is a temptation. Perhaps I will finally. Yeah, make make the plunge. I recommend the Biscoff. Biscoff. <laughs> okay. Well, you heard it here first. That's one of the picks. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for a wonderful debut. Thank you, Nick. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.